I don't think it's an overstatement to say that without the grace of God and the love of God, we cannot live. I think that God's grace and love are two of the most precious gifts that we could possibly be given. So maybe that's why both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John gave really strong warnings that there are things that sound like grace and love, but are nothing less than demonic counterfeits that destroy people's lives. If you don't understand the grace of God, it might be easy to live like however you want, you know? But if you really understand the grace of God and what it cost him, that he gave his son for us and what he's bringing us into, you can't just lightly sin or just excuse it and say, oh, this is okay, I'm covered by grace. It's actually the opposite. It should propel you or, or it should compel you to want to live a holy life. Hey, I'm Nate Dancer, and this is the eighth episode in our series, A Firm Foundation. If demonic versions of grace and love were threatening the early church just decades after Jesus established it, then you better believe it's a threat in our day and age. In today's episode, we're going to look at two key passages about the grace of God and the love of God so that you can see through the demonic deceptions and into God's beautiful truth. That's what's coming up. Here we go. Okay, so this is the eighth episode in our series of Firm Foundation, and to join me to talk about some scripture today is Ken Larkin. Ken, you're the director of intake here at Pure Life and also a biblical counselor. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. So we're going to look at two passages of scripture today. We're going to look at Titus chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 3, verse 8, and also 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. We've basically come into the third and final section of this series. The first section was mainly about God's warning to stay out of sexual sin, but also his heart for those who have ignored his warnings and also the way that he helps people come out of sexual sin or idolatry. And then the second section was all about our response. We should humble ourselves, pray, seek God's face, and turn from our wicked ways. So this last section, what I wanted to do was cover a number of different topics that are almost just basic foundational principles for living the Christian life. So today we're going to cover knowing what the true grace of God is and what the true love of God is. And I think that as we go throughout this study, people will understand why it's so necessary to understand the true grace of God and the true love of God. So I guess we can just jump right into Titus. Again, that's Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through chapter 3, verse 8. Um, before we get right into the text, can we just talk about the context for these verses or the context of this letter? What did you learn as you studied? Um, well, Paul had done some previous work on the island of Crete, and Titus had worked with him at various times. Uh, he's mentioned a lot like in Corinthians, I think 2 Corinthians or something. So he basically left Titus there to continue to work 
and then also to appoint leaders over all the churches. And he just laid down some guidelines as far as qualifications for the leaders they'd be appointing, as well as some basic guidelines for living. Okay, yeah, yeah. I, I guess we this would start to sort of transition into what we're gonna talk about, but yeah, it's really fascinating when you think about what Paul wrote this letter for, right? He's He's got a man on the ground in Crete, and he's trying to help Titus govern the body of Christ in Crete. And he's instructing him on some of the problems that he would face, some of the key things he needs to focus on. You know, I, that's what I think is so amazing about when you really dig into the Word of God and you start to apply yourself to learn and to study. It just brings out a, a richness. Um, I'm reading from the ESV, but in, in chapter one, you can almost hear Paul like, you can almost hear Paul responding to some of the questions and the problems that Titus would be facing, and Paul saying, this is why I left you in Crete, right. <laughs> so that you might put what remained into order. You know, so maybe Titus is saying, man, these people are, they're, they're so disordered. You know, these people are, they just live however they want to. They used to have such a life of self-unrestraint. They do whatever they want. They say whatever they want, you know, and Paul going, hey, this is why I left you there. Yeah. Because this is what these people need. So yeah, it's really pretty amazing. So one thing I, I saw too that I thought was really, really helpful for us is that when Paul Hopefully I can explain this, what I'm thinking, in a, in a concise way. But he opens this book up by talking about the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Mm -hmm. So there's something about the truth and having a real knowledge of it that is consistent with a godly life which means the opposite would be true as well, that there's a way of relating to the truth that is consistent with an ungodly life. And that it would almost be like, if you live an ungodly life, you don't know the truth. You might know about the truth, but there's, yeah, it was just really fascinating as I, as I read through this. He says, the truth which accords with godliness. He talks about for Titus, that he should teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he starts talking all about how they, how they live. Yeah. So it's like if you teach your doctrine in a way that lets people live however they want to, you're not teaching sound doctrine, you know, because it doesn't lead to godliness. So it's really interesting as I thought about the true grace of God. Anyway, those are just a couple of thoughts. Yeah, that's good. And one of the other things that I would say in what Paul was addressing was the Judaizers that had dogged his steps, you know, throughout his missionary journeys, saying that you had to keep the law of Moses. And they were talking about law versus grace. You have to keep the law of Moses. So you had on one side, he was addressing a legalistic type thing that you have to keep all the letter of the law to be justified. It's not by grace, it's by works. 
And on the other hand, like the loose living around them, the pagan culture they came out of, these churches, basically you can live any way you want and the grace of God covers you. The grace is a license to sin. So it's either on one hand, a rigid thing that you have to do all these things to be right with God, or the other side is since you're right with God and you're covered with grace, you can do whatever you want. Right. And then trying to, okay, where's the real, like you said, where's the real gospel, the real truth, the real grace of God in the midst of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because in each error, there's no power to live a godly life. So whether it's law and rigidity, you know, you can see how when Jesus confronted the Pharisees, like they didn't have the power to live a godly life. They were doing the whole law thing, but they didn't have power. And he was talking about your hearts are full of wickedness and corruption. And then on the other hand, when you just assume you've got the grace of God, there's no power in that either. Right. So either way leads to this disordered, ungodly life. So then this whole book, this whole letter, talking about appointing elders, governing the churches, like you said, some rough qualifications for somebody who should be in leadership, talking about the Judaizers, talking about training people in godly living, that all leads up to our passage. Right. And why all of that should be happening. For the grace of God has appeared, bring salvation to all people. So maybe we can just, yeah, let's just dive into the text and maybe go line by line, sort of, and see what we learn. Was there anything else you wanted to say before we did that? No, I think that's good. Okay. Yeah, so that first line, for the grace of God has appeared, what did you want to bring out from having studied that? For me, the main thing was um, not so much has appeared, but has appeared to all men. Mm. that God has made known as grace to all men, that this message went throughout the whole world, and it is a universal call. Not everyone is saved, but everyone is offered that grace through Jesus Christ. And some respond appropriately and, and embrace that message, and others reject it, but it has appeared because Jesus came in the flesh and manifested God's grace. He was full of grace and truth, and he preached the truth, he lived the truth, he demonstrated it, and then he died, you know, and rose again. Hmm. But it is a universal message. It's for all of us. We call it the good news. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting when I looked at the, the different translations, it's kind of split down the middle. Some translations render it, for the grace of God has appeared, comma, bringing salvation. And then some render it, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. So it's, I don't know that there's a substantive difference between the two, but I did think it was interesting to ponder both of those phrases, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation in it almost like sort of they're almost separate like it's grace here and it also brings salvation but i thought it was fascinating to also read it in the sense that for the grace of god that brings salvation like it's one thing meaning without the grace of god the true grace of god there is no salvation right there's a false grace but in the false grace, even as much as it 
has a resemblance to the truth, there's no saving power in it, right? So you can have all of the trappings, the outward trappings like, oh, I go to church, I hear the gospel, I listen to Christian music, I, I read Christian books. It has that feel of being, I'm in the grace of God, but without some kind of this, this power, it's not true. It's not the real thing, which I totally lived in for a long time. Yeah, me too. Yeah, and like you said, just bringing, bringing salvation for all people. Like, yeah, that's, it's so good to remember that it's a call to everybody. Some accept it, some reject it. Yeah, so I thought it was interesting. You're talking about like the true grace of God versus the false grace of God. Um, and I was thinking right here in particular, Paul is dealing with that antinomianism, the, the basically grace is a license to sin. He's like, wait a second. The true grace of God teaches us something. It instructs us something that if you really have the grace of God in your life, if you're really saved, then it's going to impact your lifestyle. Paul talked about, uh, in a letter to Timothy, he talked about people that had a form of godliness, but they denied the power. It didn't affect their lifestyle. They didn't really change, so they weren't really saved. They just had a form of godliness mm -hmm. without having the substance behind it. So I thought that was interesting. The first thing it teaches us is self-denial. <laughs> Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And yeah, so if it doesn't affect your lifestyle, there's something seriously wrong with what you're believing. It's not, you know, faith without works is dead. There has to be something of God's power in operation in your daily life or something is wrong. Yeah. Yeah, one thing I was, as I was looking at this passage, I was just reminded how important it is to compare Scripture with Scripture because, for instance, Paul writes a... He's, he's talking about the true grace of God to Titus because Titus needs a very specific message. He might give that in a little different flavor to a different church, but when you compare Scripture with Scripture, you're able to almost like hone in on the true meaning. You look at this one and then you say, oh, that's interesting. In this case, he's talking about renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions and living a self-controlled, upright, and godly life. Okay, so there's like a negative aspect and a positive aspect. Where else do I see that, that dynamic happening of a negative of the grace of God and a positive of the grace of God. And I thought about a few, a few scriptures um, in Ephesians 4. He talks about this exact same thing. Mm -hmm. He says, let's see, th that he's talking about the Gentiles and the Gentiles just following their passions and their lusts and just living however they want. And he says, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, 
and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So there you have again the negative, which is the putting off, and the positive, which is the putting on. We have to compare scripture with scripture to get a full picture of what, of what God is really trying to communicate to us. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know what the other passage you have, but Colossians 3 is the exact same I thing. I had that one too, yeah. yep. Yeah, and I also had Hebrews 6, verses 8 through 10. I thought this one was really interesting because specifically Paul in Titus was talking about salvation, the grace of God that brings salvation, right? And in Hebrews 6, he's talking about how some people have not responded to the word of God in a way that brings fruit in their lives, right? And so he says, if it, meaning the influence of God, if it bears thorns and thistles, then it's worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. And then he says this, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Right. So it's like there are people who are getting all of the, they're getting the teaching, they're getting the ministry, they're getting the word, but it's not bearing fruitfulness, it's actually bearing thorns and thistles. And he says, man, that doesn't belong to salvation. You know, but then he sort of says it in the negative, like we believe for better things about you, things that belong to salvation. So yeah, it's just, again, it's this, the need to compare scripture with scripture so that we're not deceived. Yeah, I was, uh, in looking at this passage, I too was thinking about the idea of putting on and putting off. Um, of course, putting off the old way of doing things, you know, ungodliness, worldly lust, all these things, and putting on, you know, living self-controlled, righteous and godly lives. But even in that, okay, well, what's the motive behind that? Mm. And having like an eternal perspective, the next verse says, looking for the blessed hope mm. and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and then who gave himself for us. That ultimately, uh, we're gonna get into that later with First John, but we love him because he first loved us. If you really understand the grace of God and you really understand the hope of your calling, what we have is an inheritance in heaven, it's gonna propel you forward spiritually and you're gonna to wanna to live right because you're basically preparing for the rest of your life, for eternity. And if you don't, let me put it this way, if you don't understand the grace of God, it might be easy to live like however you want, you know? But if you really understand the grace of God and what it cost him, that he gave his son for us, and what he's bringing us into, you can't just lightly sin or just excuse it and say, oh, this is okay, I'm covered by grace. It's actually the opposite. It should propel you or, or it should compel you to want to live a holy life. Mm. Yeah. I really appreciate that because I know that at Pure Life, we have a, how would you say it? In almost everything we teach, there's going to be the element of exposing error, right? Because we are so, we have so many people coming to us who have been deceived. So there's like a, a heavy emphasis on let's make sure we show what the false is so that we can see the true. But, you know, in the same token, this isn't just about let me make sure I'm not deceived. This is also 
if I really see who it is that's calling me and what he has called me into and the just the glory that he's offering me and I'm waiting for this, <laughs> I'm waiting for real life to begin, then you aren't going to want to settle for some cheap imitation. For sure. And even the whole idea of the call to deny ourselves. I mean, who wants to deny yourself unless you see that there's something better on the other side? Yeah. Uh, we want instant gratification in our culture. We want immediate results. We want everything cheap, without pain, without cost. And that's just not reality. You know, it costs God everything to bring salvation to us. And there's something about, you know, the cost of following. Mm -hmm. um, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Mm -hmm. But if you really realize, like what you said, like what he is offering, people are always looking so much at what do I have to give up to follow yeah. Christ? It should be what do I get to give up for mm -hmm. something greater? You know, and I think about where Jesus talked about like the pearl of great price yeah. or the treasure hidden in the field. If you really see what we're coming into as believers, that Jesus is actually coming back to establish his kingdom. And we can't even, there's nothing to compare it with. It's like paradise restored. You know, no more sorrow, no more pain, mm -hmm. no more sickness, dying. All the things that we have to deal with that are negative consequences of, this, of sin are going to be gone. And all we understand in a certain way in a practical daily living is living in a fallen world. But, you know, as Jesus becomes more real to us and we set our mind on things above, you're willing to do what it takes, you know, because it's not really, it doesn't seem like a denial when you know you're getting something better than what you're losing, yeah. even though, you know, we don't like to die, you know, whatever. But even in this life, as you know, we know having a relationship with Jesus is light years better than what we had when we were living in our sin. And that's just a down payment of where we're headed, Yeah, that blessed hope that we're yeah. looking forward to. Yeah, as you're talking, I was just thinking about, okay, so if, if we want to ask what is this passage teaching us about the true grace of God, then almost everything that follows this statement, for the grace of God has appeared, everything is part of that grace, right? Like yeah. salvation. And then training to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It's also included in that grace is a training to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life. Also in there is this waiting, this impulse to wait for a blessed hope and something about knowing the glory of our great God and Savior, something about knowing this Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, something about being purified for God's own possession so that we're zealous for good works. It's like all of that is a package that is given to us in grace. Do I have that? And maybe not necessarily even do I have that, but where am I failing to appropriate that grace? I mean, in my own life. Yeah. Like, is this really how I'm living? Because I've definitely experienced some of this, but there's always more to grow in. Or, and sometimes we, we backslide. We fall back. 
in some way, you know? And this is a call to us like, okay, am I tapping into the grace of God so that this is what's happening in my life really on a daily basis? Yeah, absolutely. And I thought it was interesting because you had the two aspects there that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. So the idea of putting off the whole old sinful way of living, but then also purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works, putting on the godly lifestyle that he's calling us into. Mm. Yeah, that, uh, that word, lawlessness, is anomia, uh, the Greek word anomia, and basically it just means you live as if there is no law, either because you're ignorant of it, you don't even realize that there's a law, or because you're just constantly violating it. Either way, a person who is living contrary to the law of God as a lifestyle because they don't know that there is one or because they're just constantly violating it, that's lawlessness. And Jesus gave himself up so that we would no longer live that kind of life. And right. that's what happens if we receive the grace of God. We're pulled out of that kind of lawless life. But then, like you said, more than just that, not just the negative, but the positive. Like, man, do I have a zealous attitude? I want my life to be full of good works. Is that really what I think about? Do I have a zealousness? I mean, I've definitely tasted of it, mm -hmm. but I, I, I need to grow in it. I know I need to grow in it. Yeah, me too, for sure. But I have found, like, when I've tasted it, like, just the simplicity of just walking with Jesus, living a life, yeah. you know, a commandment-oriented where you're trying to do what he's commanded us to do, there's so much joy in it. There's just a simplicity of just enjoy. It's not like some burden, like, oh, I got to do all these things. Yeah. No, it's actually joyful when you're learning to walk in the Spirit. And we get little taste here and there. Maybe it's not perfect, but he's giving us taste of what he's bringing us into. Yeah, because, you know, as you go throughout the letter, too, the contrast, he contrasts it again. First, he talks about, in the passage we're looking at, train us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, right, or lawlessness. But he also talks about later, he contrasts a godly life with what we once were. Mm -hmm. This is uh, chapter 3, verse 3. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, yeah. right? And saved us into a life where we're zealous for good works. I mean, but like, yeah, like you're saying, I mean, the enemy totally wants to slander God and say, oh yeah, God's the slave driver and he's just gonna make you like, you just have to be burdened down with all this good that you have to do. <laughs> but I mean, the life you come out of is what? A life where you're a slave to various passions and pleasures, yeah. malice, envy, you hate one another, you're foolish, you're led astray. I mean, come on, what's the trade-off? There's no, there is no comparison between the two. Misery on the one hand, or a life that is fruitful, blessed, prosperous spiritually, yeah. 
And how crazy is that, just a deception in that, that we were miserable in our sin and somehow we've been duped by the enemy, by our own flesh, by the world and its attitudes and philosophies, that that life, that life of misery is somehow real life and what God's offering is gonna take away our joy, our fun, our fulfillment. It's just a total lie. Yeah. You don't even know true life until you come into a relationship with the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Yeah. So it's, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the Satan speaking to us like he spoke to Eve. You know, man, yeah. God's holding out on you. You could be so fulfilled if you just did what he told you not to do. But okay, you can stay in your bondage if you want to. And we believe that lie. And the crazy thing, the context was they were living in paradise <laughs> and he's offering them paradise. They, yeah. already, they already had heaven on earth. Yep. He's like, well, if you really want to be happy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Meanwhile, he was seeking to destroy their lives. Yep. Yeah, so hopefully this, um, hopefully this brings out some of, of that passage and what the purpose was. It's an, an amazing letter, definitely worth spending a week or so just meditating on and reading through and thinking about how it compares to other passages. Let's um let's go to First John. I did want to say something. I don't know if it's worth. Oh saying yeah, go or not, for it. But yeah, the very next verse, like where you left off. Uh huh. God, our Savior, who saved us. Mm hmm. Just the uh, verse five in chapter th uh, three, where it says, "Not of works, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us." And there's kind of two things that I see in there. One of them is not by works of righteousness we have done, that comes against the whole idea of, you know, you have to keep the law, you have to do something to be saved. But then the other thing is people can use that for that lawless type mentality, the grace is a license to sin, the idea that, wait a second, I'm not saved by works, so I can do whatever I want. It's all grace and it's all covered. And like you mentioned before, scripture interprets scripture. I like it um, when you go back to Ephesians chapter two, because this verses are these verses is a classic passage on you're saved by grace. You know, mm. Ephesians two, eight and nine, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So if you stop there, it's okay, it's not of works. But the very next verse says, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Mm. So the works are not the means of salvation, they're not the cause of your salvation, but that should be the fruit of a genuine relationship with God. And that is something that was throughout this epistle. You know, Paul said in the end of chapter one of Titus that the false teachers are disqualified from every good work. Mm. And then he says to Timothy, you need to be a pattern of good works. You know, and then he says redeeming us to be zealous for good works. And then later on in chapter three, verse one, we need to be ready for every good work. And then twice when he's ending the epistle, he says in verse eight of chapter three that we need to be careful to maintain good works. And then in verse 14, right before he closes again, let our people also learn to maintain good works. So I think it was very important for Paul that we had good works. <laughs> yeah. So we're not saved by them, but that's the fruit of a genuine the genuine grace of God in operation in our lives. If you're yeah. truly saved, it's gonna bear fruit in your life. Yeah, and I think that's, it's, it's good for us in a case like this probably to examine ourselves and ask ourselves, have I ever 
really experienced the kind of transformation that shows a change from lawlessness, living according to the flesh, being selfish and self-centered, to a life that is compelled, like you said. There's, there should be a compulsion to be self-controlled, to live an upright life, to live a godly life, to do for others, for my life to be a channel for good works. And if that transition has never happened, then it's like, man, have I ever really experienced the grace of God? Right. But if we have experienced that, then we should be encouraged. We're on the right track, and now we just need, like, we do need to grow in grace. I can't remember where that is, but I was thinking of that, where it talks about growing in grace. And if you think about growing in grace in terms of what we've talked about here, becoming better at renouncing a self-willed life and an ungodly life, being more self-controlled and upright and godly, having more of a, a waiting for God, being purified more from my lawless deeds and having a greater zealousness for good works. Am I like, do I see that trajectory, an upward trajectory of grace? And if not, I know for myself, it's time to seek the Lord, <laughs> you know, all over again. Like, Lord, renew this in my life. Grow me in this because I don't want to, I don't want to go back to the kind of life I was living, a graceless life. Absolutely. And I would say this too with the whole idea of denying, you know, it's one thing that we're trained or we're taught to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, but the grace of God gives us the power to do that too. Not just the motivation, but the power yeah. to actually change. Where God by his spirit comes within us and gives us supernaturally what we don't have ourselves. That I've been finding the grace of God, you know, in a moment by moment throughout the day, something you can appropriate. Like I remember, you know, when I first came back from my vacation, I was just hammered with work. I had a lot to do and my natural default would be to, you know, I was stressed, you know, get into anxiety. And it was the grace of God just came in and, and suddenly I just came to my senses instead of just staying in it. I said, wait a second, I'm not thinking right. And I just turned to the Lord and started thanking him. You know, you know the situation I'm in, I'm thanking you for helping me or whatever. And just turning to him, the grace of God came in where within a very short amount of time, something I could have stood in for a week while I was trying to catch up it was just gone. Hmm. And it was just by learning to turn to him and his power, his grace, you know, coming in and helping me in my time of need. Yeah, amen. That's awesome. Why don't we uh, move over to 1 John? We could talk maybe briefly about the context here, what's going on in, in 1 John. Yeah, so... From what I see here, um, the time this was written in, John would have been the last apostle that was still alive. So he was an eyewitness account of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. And at this time, uh, like Paul had predicted previous, he said basically false teachers would arise among you and within you. And this was actually happening 30 years or however long you know, after that. It was actually happening in the church and these false teachers were coming against the central message of Christianity, the basic fundamentals of the faith. So John was addressing 
what was being said and trying to encourage and strengthen the faith of the believers. You know, the beginnings of like the Gnostic heresy where they basically believed a dualistic approach to life that spirit was good and material or matter was evil. And to the point where they would even say that Jesus only appeared to have come in the flesh because if he came in the flesh, he would have been contaminated with mm. evil. You know, so it's, I was thinking about, I use the word, how insidious is the enemy that he actually tries to help Jesus out or something and bring in these crazy, you know, heresies that are leading people astray. And they also, the idea of, um, what was the other, dosis, docetism? Oh, docetism. Docetism, that basically from the Greek word to appear, that Jesus really didn't come in the flesh, like I said, but he just appeared to come in the flesh. And a, and a little twist on that was even like the Spirit of Christ descended on the man, Jesus, at his baptism, but then was lifted right before the crucifixion. So he didn't actually die. As God. As God. Right. He was just a, a normal human being or whatever. So that takes away the whole centrality of the cross and the reality that Jesus actually died for our sins. You know, if, if he wasn't fully God, there would be no merit in his death. And if he wasn't fully human, his death would have been a sham. It, wasn't, it wouldn't have been real. He wouldn't have been a real sacrifice for our sins. So they were undermining the basic tenets of the faith mm -hmm. and basically taking away the hope of the gospel. And with that, they were even denying sin since matter is, is inherently evil and spirit is good. You could basically live an immoral life, do whatever you want, and it's okay. That's just the flesh. It has nothing to do with your spiritual life. And John came directly against that in basically saying your life does matter. This is who Jesus really was. This is what he did. And th these are the implications for your life. And just encouraging them in the faith. What you heard is true. These people that have infiltrated the church are not real disciples. And even went on to say, you know, they've left us. They showed their true colors in a sense because they left us. If they were truly disciples, they would have remained with us. But it's evident that they weren't really Christians because now they're coming against us. And the problem that John faced is that would have been bad enough, but they were militant. They were trying to lead others astray actively. And John had to come against this. Mm. You know, and, and being a pastor, that pastoral heart, he really wanted to come alongside these believers mm -hmm. and help them you know, to deal with this heresy. Yeah, that's, that's a really well-described background of this book. And one of the things that I think is amazing about the Word of God is that Somehow, God's Spirit can inspire a man to write very specifically to one context, and yet its message remains timeless right. and relevant to every man and every woman in any culture, no matter what their background is, no matter what cultural context they find themselves in, the words of, of 1 John are incredibly relevant. Yeah. And for us, studying in order to find the timeless, relevant principles is just so helpful, so worthwhile. Because, for instance, I, well, I think uh, in a couple, was it the last show maybe, I encouraged people to go through and do a a theme study in this book because if you want to look for repeated words over and over, man, this this book is full of repeated words over and over. Um, truth and lies, 26 times. 
spiritual knowledge, 37 times, love, 46 times, abide, 23 times, God, Jesus, spirit, over 200 times, God is mentioned in this book. And so as you begin to look at this book and ask the question, how do these themes relate? Like, what is he trying to communicate to me? For me, like this picture really started to emerge as I was reading this, which is that there is a, it's very similar to what we just talked about, but there's a way to truly know God and there's a false knowledge of God. There's a pathway that is in the nature of God. There's a pathway that's in truth and leads to life. And there's a deceptive pathway that seems to be Christian that is anti-Christian. And when you start to look at the words and the themes and look at what he's saying, I mean, in one way, this book is extremely basic, but it's also extremely profound, you know? So the kind of life you live determines where you're going. <laughs> Are you walking the pathway of deception, hatred for others, practicing sin, in other words, are you denying God by the way you live or are you walking along the path of light and truth and love and righteousness and confessing Jesus? And again, this is not written like, oh, believers obviously all do this and then it's just those pagans out there that walk the path of deception. He's saying there's all these people that confess right. something about Jesus but they're actually deceived and walking in darkness and antichrist. So it's, yeah, it's like, man, in today's day and age, with so much deception out there, it is vital that we know how to truly walk with the Lord. And that's what this book is teaching us. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you were talking about themes earlier, and one of the words that I, that I really clued in on, I think you mentioned it was 40-something times in the book, was love. And where John here very uh, clearly differentiates between a true believer and a false by love, to the point where it, it's like, it's non-negotiable. If you don't love, you don't know God. And even it's not enough to love, it has to be godly love, because you can love the world, but he said if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. So. What do you love? Where do your affections lie? What is the general tenor or direction of your life? And, you know, again, you know, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. But then, okay, if you're in that relationship with the Lord, then there has to be something in your life <laughs> that proves it, in a sense. You know, he, he's basically giving, uh, these are some proofs or some foolproof, I guess, a way to know whether you're in Christ or not. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. And he even says, you know, we can know that we love God if we keep his commandments. And you, you can know you love your brothers if you keep God's commandments. You know, it's, you can't separate the two. If you really love God, it's going to prove it on the horizontal to how you relate to other people. And I would say it this way, it's impossible to truly love people if you don't love God because he's a source of that love. Yeah, and this is so important, right? Because 
especially in our culture, the definition of love is just being totally distorted. And everybody's claiming that they're on the side of love. And, you know, in some way, Christians are being said to be on the side of hate, you know, on the side of bigotry. And that's only going to increase, I think, that kind of um, accusation is going to be leveled against us more and more. You don't love. But John is defining love. He's defining what true godly love is like mm-hmm. and what it looks like for us to have that love. And we're going to need to know whether or not we have it because the pressure to capitulate in our culture is only going to grow more and more intense. But yeah, so it's just it's an amazing, an amazing book. And the other thing that I really just thought was incredibly beautiful is the idea that the spirit of the world, and this is a very deep topic, so <laughs> I'm not going to be able to get into all of it, but if people are interested and haven't and have not read Pastor Steve's book, Intoxicated with Babylon, <laughs> it's must, a must read. But he talks about the spirit of the world and what defines the spirit of the world, which is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, and how none of that is from the Father. And then, so he contrasts what the spirit of the world is with what the love of God really is. So the spirit of the world is lust and it's pride. It's what I want for me, what I can get out of life. Um, It's self at the center and devotion to self. I mean, it talk about a description of how we're being trained to act in America, self first. That is the spirit of the world. And so then the spirit of God is completely different. It's selflessness. Unselfishness is the spirit of God. Yeah. It's like, wow, man, do we need this message? Yeah, and we have like redefined uh, love in our culture. I think the only love we know in our culture is self-love. Mm-hmm. And we, we've actually practically deified it. You know, we've basically made it to be like the thing, self-esteem, self-love. But Paul said that's going to be a peril in the last days. It's, we, we've made it into a virtue. We've made pride and self-love into virtues when actually it's antichrist. And Paul said one of the perils of the last days would be men would be lovers of themselves, and we're seeing that played out in our culture. And he says, if you if you love the world, loving yourself is just a part of that. The love of the Father is not in you. It's not real. It's not the real love of God. Yeah, and again, so then in, in this book, in 1 John, when you talk about the true love of God, and when we read chapter 3, verses 1 to 10, the the true love of God is manifested in a departing from lawlessness. Mm-hmm. A departing from lawlessness and a pursuit of purity. He says in verse 3, well, I guess I'll read verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning 
also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Yeah. So this is this is the same message that Paul wrote to Titus. It is. But in one case, Paul is coming at it from the angle of the grace of God. John is coming at it from the angle of the love of God. Mm-hmm. Because this whole book is thoroughly saturated with the love of God. <laughs> so it's amazing. It's one message. And it's even the hallmark of genuine Christianity in verse 14 of chapter 3. We know we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Whoever does not love his brother abides in death. And then verse 16, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So that's the thing, you know, he goes on to say we love him because he first loved us, that we need to recognize that if we're not laying down our life for other people, then maybe we haven't really understood what Jesus did for us and the implications for our life. It's not, it's not a legalistic thing, oh, he did that, now I, I have to do it. Yeah. No, it should be I get to do it. I get to follow in my Savior's footsteps and I want to love because he's been so good to me. And you know, obviously, if God fills you with himself when you're saved, it's his love in you compelling you to want to meet the needs around you, to bless other people, to be a blessing. Mm-hmm. And I know in my life I've been a curse enough, you know, in my past life that it, what a blessing that God can actually use our lives to bless other people in real ways, to, to love people in practical ways. Yeah, and if Paul was talking about this life of godliness from the angle of grace, and if John is talking about this life of godliness from the angle of love, then John says this, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him, right? So he's giving us a way to walk closely with God so that God's power takes up residence in us and helps us to live the Christian life. Yeah. Right? So like, okay, the spirit of the world, again, we mentioned the spirit of the world. That's in chapter two. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, that is, that's the defining characteristic of the world spirit. Here is the direction the world spirit is going in, and it's like powered by lust and pride, God's spirit is going in a totally different direction and it's powered by love, it's motivated by love. So when we, when we begin to devote ourselves, like you said, to laying down our lives for the brethren, we're entering into the current of God's love and we begin to go in the direction that God I don't know if you would say the direction God's going in or going, moving toward him, right? But if we live this life of selfishness, then we're antichrist. Yeah. Because that is what the spirit of the world is. It's selfishness and pride. Yeah, his word is just phenomenal because it's, it shows us eternal realities that we wouldn't see without this. Yeah. Amen. And it's also a pathway, like you said, you know, we used to walk according to the course of this world. And really, Paul lays that out in Galatians 5. It's really just the works of the flesh, living, you know, according to the world, the spirit of the world, or the fruit of the spirit. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. you know, and as we get closer to the Lord and, and walk with Him and abide in Him, really, that that fruit is going to be born in our life and, you know, love. And I've even heard it said, really, they're all manifestations of love. And I can believe that at some level because Paul even defines love or qualities or characteristics or attributes of love in 1 Corinthians 13. And the first couple things there are fruits of the Spirit. Love is patient. Love is kind. You know, it's almost like different manifestations because he didn't say the fruits of the Spirit. He said the fruit of the Spirit. And God is love. God is full of joy, but the Bible didn't say God is joy. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting. But the reality is, Remember Pastor Steve said this, it was profound but simple. Remember, the fruit of the Spirit is of the Spirit. You know, that we're called into something where we don't have to produce this godly life. We don't have to produce the fruit. It's a natural byproduct of our relationship with the Lord. We really just need to focus on a relationship, learning to mm -hmm. abide in Him and walk with Him. And He'll produce that fruit in our lives. And He'll give us the ability even the desire, I like what Paul said, that work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For God's at work within you to will, the desire, and to do or to act, the ability. Yeah. It's him. It's yeah. not me trying to get my act together. It's a new life Yeah, that's characterized by his spirit instead of my old fleshly self. <laughs> yeah, you know, and the other thing as I was reading through this passage is for people who are feeling like they're just not measuring up, right? Like when you read this book, it's like, whoa, I mean, this it's confrontive because it's very black and white. It's very strong. If you do this, you are this. If you do this, you are this, you know, kind of thing. Um, yeah. But this isn't about being absolutely perfect. And I have this 100% spirit of love toward everybody. Right. Um, it's about the direction that we're going in. What's the, what's the trajectory of our life? And I find a lot of encouragement in 3.8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, right? So like, okay, in myself, do I see selfishness? Totally. Do I see pride? Absolutely. The reason Jesus appeared was to destroy those works, right? This grip that selfishness and pride has on my life, this superstructure of self that is just, it's like there. You know, he appeared to dismantle that whole thing, to crush it under his feet so that a new kind of life could emerge. And so that's the pathway that every true believer is on, the pathway out of the old and into the new, out of selfishness into love, out of pride into humility, out of lust into mercy. That's the pathway that we're all walking on. Yeah, it's interesting because coming out of a background, a lot of self-condemnation, I read the beginning of verse 8, my version, the New King James says, he who sins is of the devil. I'm like, oh boy, does that mean if I do one thing wrong, I'm, I'm not saved or whatever? But then he goes on to say in verse 9, whoever has been born of God does not sin for his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. So I would say this, when you're truly born of God, there's a warfare going on in you and the Holy Spirit within you is fighting against that old man and there's a war that may not have been there before. Some people think, oh man, I got saved, now it's worse than before because you weren't fighting before. You're just yeah. living according to, the, to this world. But he's obviously not just talking about sinless perfection, even though that is the goal. You know, Jesus is the goal. But in the beginning of chapter 2, he says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. 
And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So there's, yeah. a, you know, he understands that we're in process. Yeah. It's not like you're born again and now you're sinless perfection. It's gonna be a lifetime. That's that's the outworking of your salvation. The theologians, what they call it, like sanctification. Yeah, It's becoming progressively more and more like Jesus in his character throughout your life. And when we blow it, he said, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Yeah. He's faithful because he said he'd do it. He's just because Jesus already paid for him. And it's not like this license to sin. It's no, I blew it, but I can be restored to fellowship because Jesus took care of that. I don't have to carry the weight of my sin during this, you know, in the process of change and growth and development. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, we have... Definitely in this book, in this letter here, as we're talking about the true love of God, we have barely scratched the surface. Um, all we were trying to do in, in this episode was try to give a flavor of the true grace of God and the true love of God. In, in both cases, the true is going to lead to a life of service, of giving our lives away, of purifying ourselves from lawlessness, um, of being zealous for good works. The true love, the true grace, that is the direction those things are going in. And we need to know that so that we know if we're in that or if, if we've never had it or if we've strayed from it, if we've uh, lapsed in some way and need to repent and turn and seek again those those first things, you know, the the grace of God and the love of God. Yeah, I would just encourage anybody to dig in, especially, man, to the book of 1 John. It's just incredibly profound. It is, and, and I'm so grateful that we have the Bible. When you look at our culture, they're basically throwing out even the idea of absolutes Yeah. so that we have something to ground our faith in. If we didn't have this, we would have no spiritual moorings. We would just be tossed all over the place. Yep. But we have something that's the Word of God. It's eternal, it's true, and we can bank our, our life, time, and eternity on it. That's why we're calling this series Firm Foundation. <laughs> you got it. All right, cool. Well, um, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Nate. All right, thanks so much for joining us today. We've got just a few more episodes left in this series. If you've been studying along with us, then why don't you dive into Colossians 3, verses 1 to 17 this week, because that's what's coming up in our next episode. God bless. We'll see you next time. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs and powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.